Let's uh, dive into the wonderful text in Philippians. Just uh, uh, truly a joy in every way as we understand all that God is showing us in this amazing text. Tonight we are going to dive into verses 15 through 20. And uh, we've been moving along in this text. In fact, last week we looked at what could have been termed the great reversal. Um, we started by seeing Paul's great Christ-exalting prayer in the first 11 verses and how he just rejoiced in the church in Philippi. We saw so many details about how this is uh, arguably, if not absolutely, the most uh, powerful Christian church in Paul's time, the most strong witness and those who go forth with just the greatest power for Paul and for the gospel and have continued to do so from their inception. And then in verses 12 to 14, it came this reality of Paul's condition, this imprisonment that he had faced. And how in many ways we thought this might be kind of the, the turning point. This might be a spot where we, we see this great reversal, where we see a, a low point or a lull because of the wonderful beginning we had and now the kind of the mountaintop expression of Paul's prayer and then down into the valley of his imprisonment. But not at all. Not at all. In fact, that imprisonment had worked out powerfully for the proclamation of Christ throughout the Praetorian Guard, which as we discussed was nine units of a thousand men each, and through all of them, but not just them, but through all of Rome because of the unique prisoner that Paul was. Not vicious, not rebellious, but gently and quietly sitting and waiting and proclaiming Christ. And it had the attention of the entire city. So it was indeed a massive point. Well, the same idea of reversals carries into our text today. And it's indicated in our title, which I've called our message for tonight, Whether This Way or That. Whether This Way or That. As this idea of reversals come to mind, let's take a look at our text and see how that pans out. So follow along, if you would, with me, please, as I read from verses 15 to 20. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel." The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether this way or that. Our first point in our message tonight I've titled, Preaching to What End? 
question mark. Preaching to what end? I've labeled our point this way because this might be the question that we're tempted to ask when we read through these first three verses in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15 opens up our point and reveals the structure of the whole point. Namely, verse 15 talks about these two groups of people. Some that are preaching Christ from envy and strife at the beginning of verse 15, and some from goodwill. So we have two groups that are being brought before us. Then when we move to verses 16 and 17, they talk in each verse about one of these two groups. So it takes one of those some groups, those preaching from envy and strife, or those preaching those some that are preaching from goodwill and they expand upon them and that's the structure of this first point the main discussion of the whole point is that christ is being preached each of the two groups discussed here are preaching christ the question becomes preaching christ to what end hence our point preaching christ to what end the first group are preaching because of envy and strife. Now we must be careful here about the footnote. And I want to, as we go through Philippians, I want to take time and, and slow down a little bit from point to point. We've already talked about footnotes at previous times in our discussion. And we need to be a little careful when we look at the footnote for verse 15, that little A that is at the beginning of the verse. And when we cross-reference it, it takes us to 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. And when we go to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13, we read the following. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So when we see the cross-reference of verse 15 and that little a to 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, and we read that verse talking about false apostles, deceitful workers, and those that disguise themselves, that immediately brings to mind those that are not true believers. That would bring to mind the wolves in the flock, the false prophets, false apostles, and so forth, those that are deceitful. We have to be careful about cross-referencing here because although we could make that assumption, it would not be correct. The reference here in verse A is actually talking about just the first words in 2 Corinthians 11.13. And the, the first word in that verse is the same as it is in our text in Philippians 1.15. For such men is how First, or 2 Corinthians 11.13 begins. For such men. That same phraseology is what we begin with in verse 15 where it says some to be sure. So it's not referencing in the cross-reference the entire concept of false believers. It's referencing an introduction. So we have to be careful when we look at cross-references to really look at what is being referenced. As we've talked about before, sometimes it is a concept, sometimes it is a word, sometimes it is a thought of a whole verse. In this case, it is not the thought of the whole verse, but it is that concept 
that introductory concept. So I just wanted to draw that to your attention so that you would recognize some of those components. And as you use cross-reference, because they are so valuable in our study of God's Word, that you would use them carefully and correctly. And when you have questions about it, that's what the pastor is for. Okay, that's what the staff is for, to call and say, hey, I've been studying this and I'm going through 2 Corinthians with my ladies' Bible study and I've been, you know, catching up and, and working ahead, which with all that you ladies do, that would be amazing. But um, I've been looking at cross-references and, and I've got a question. Great. We would love to talk about those questions. So use those cross-references, but use them carefully as we consider that point. So we must be careful about the footnote. And, and we're tempted then to question as we consider verse 15 of Philippians 1. We're tempted to question to what end? What is the end of this preaching? I.e., is this true gospel preaching? Can you preach from envy and strife? And can this be gospel preaching? Or was it that they were false apostles and deceitful workers? We're going to find out that that is not at all what the case was. The answer is that this is true gospel preaching. One author rightly states, all this gold from Paul's preaching in verses 12 to 14, that is how the gospel has gone out through all of Rome, including the Praetorian Guard, all of that gold is not without some alloy. You know what alloy is? Alloy is a metal that's made up of a bunch of different stuff. Now, when uh, I went into engineering, I thought steel is steel. Okay, so steel is all iron, and you know that's what we make structural steel out of, and it's not concrete, and it's not wood, it's iron. And we even call it iron in the trade sometimes. But the fact is that it's not just iron, anything but. It's full of all types of different elements to make it more pliable, to make it more elastic. Molybdenum and many other components go into structural steel. Those mix of different components are what we call an alloy. Well, when Paul's preaching came forth, it wasn't all gold. Some of it was mixed with a little alloy. There was some of it that wasn't wholly pure gold that was coming forward. And that's what we're seeing here. Verses 12 to 14 is the gold, and now we see a little of the alloy. It is still gospel preaching, but it is preaching that is antagonistic to Paul. There are these that are envious of Paul. They're jealous of his success. They, they look at all that he's done, all that he's continued to succeed, and, and they're amazed, and they're a little jealous by it. I mean, what is it with this guy, right? We, we've read in the book about how his words are mighty and he comes across as a man of great stature, but really he's kind of a puny little guy when we see him in person. And he's not all that impressive. And yet he just keeps succeeding. I mean, he keeps falling in a hole, he gets arrested, and you know, we're thinking finally we're going to be done listening to this guy. And, and, and yet what happens? All of Rome is hearing about it and there are some men who are a little envious because of that they see all this success and it's bugging him how can it be that 
Even in prison, he keeps having this success. You know, that's not any different today. Sometimes men are tempted to look at others who God gifts in a more powerful way and, in a, and uses in a greater way and say, why not me? Case in point, Dr. John MacArthur. I went to a seminary, as you all know, where he is the president. And we had a little phrase around the seminary. Those who are trying to out MacArthur, MacArthur. They all think they're going to be the next John MacArthur. You know, I was just there this weekend and had the privilege of going to, to church with my sons. And although Pastor John was out, it was another kind of case in point. You see some of the underlings who are there under him, and they are out MacArthuring MacArthur. I'm going to be a better preacher than John MacArthur. There's a little envy that creeps in there. Well, if he can do it, I mean, you know, yeah, he's got a great voice, but, you know, he's just an average guy. I mean, come on, he's 78. What's he got that one of these young bucks doesn't have, right? Well, there is a little envy that creeps in, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about. And not only is there envy, it says here in verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ from, even from envy and strife. So there's a little strife with Paul. That word strife means debate or discord, quarrels or rivalries. We understand that, don't we? We understand how there can be rivalries between Christians that are, are, are not God-honoring and are not healthy, but go on nonetheless. I was shocked to come to Mobile and find out here in the heart of the South with Southern Baptist churches all around that there were other Southern Baptist churches, maybe you don't know this, and so I won't say their names, although you probably do and you know who they are, but they actually will preach against Christ fellowship from the pulpit by name because we are those Calvinists. Those dreaded Calvinists. And they will use it in a very derogatory sense and they will speak about us in that fashion. I said, oh, that can't be. Who would do that? I mean, other, and, and, and other SBC church, I mean, we're all the same denomination. How can that happen? And then I recognize that that's exactly what happens. In several locations, in, in fact, four or five. Strife, rivalries, contentions, quarrels. These are not the things that honor God, but they're the reality of our sin-cursed earth. And so, these very things that were going on with Paul ought not surprise us. Now, some men have looked at this and they've said, those that are preaching Christ from envy and strife, that can't be gospel preaching. These are those that are heretics. These are those that are contrary to Christ. But that's not the case at all. In fact, John Calvin writes, Paul says nothing here which I have not experienced myself. Beloved, I will tell you that there is no pastor that has stood in the pulpit but for a few weeks and certainly months that does not understand this envy and strife. It is the conflict that goes on amongst our personalities. It is, it is the way that we are. It is the way that sometimes, you know, there are those people in our lives, they just kind of rub us wrong. 
and we bristle and the hair on the back of our neck stands up when we hear them. And, and, and that's what's going on here. This is not those that are preaching contrary to Christ. These are those that are preaching contrary to Paul. They are envious of Paul. They have strife with Paul. Look at verse 16 as we see these jealous, or verse 17 as we see these jealousies described further. It says in verse 17, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Here's more descriptions of these with envy of strife. Notice foremost that they are proclaiming Christ. These are out there. In the beginning, back in verse 15, they're preaching Christ. Now we have a word proclaiming Christ, which is really a stronger verb. So it's showing that there is a more prominent proclamation of Christ that is going on. There is, there is a continuous witness that is going on in addition to the preaching. So this would be a, a, a broader term even than preaching. So it would say that it's not just the pastors who are in the area perhaps or elders, but this is others in the church who are being brought into this group. We know that it is a, a group that are those that are the, the, the former group. The former relates back to, of course, the, the first group mentioned in verse 15, those preaching from envy and strife. But they are proclaiming Christ. These cannot be the false apostles and deceitful workers of 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Because they are proclaiming Christ. They are preaching Christ in verse 15. Now they are proclaiming Christ in verse 17. This is a true proclamation of the Lord. Yet their preaching is out of selfish ambition. They're, they're only primarily concerned with their own status and elevating themselves above Paul. I'm done with this Paul. I'm going to be the next Paul. And so there is this, this selfishness that is coming about their preaching. It's interesting as, as we consider this is the same word in verse 3 of the next chapter of Philippians. Look ahead with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Philippians 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Selfish ambition is the same term in verse 3 as empty conceit. It is something that is all about themselves. And what's it supposed to be instead? Exactly what verse 3 tells us. It's supposed to be regarding others as more important. But they're not doing that. They're regarding themselves as most important. You know, it's time for me to get a little acclaim. I've been here sweating it out in Rome, trying to make a little headway for the gospel. And here this Paul comes in in chains and this short little guy and they throw him in the dungeon and everybody's talking about Paul. How come they're talking about Paul? How come they're not talking about me? I'm a pretty good preacher. I've been out here working hard. Why don't I get some attention and some respect? Nobody gives me any respect around here. That's the attitude that these preachers have totally contrary to what they should have as is expressed in philippians 2 3 there they are instead hoping to add to paul's distress 
in his imprisonment, as we see at the end of verse 17, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They see him in a difficult situation and they strive to see that they increase the stress that he's going through, through their proclaiming of Christ. Yes, they are genuinely proclaiming the gospel. They're genuinely proclaiming salvation through grace, by faith, repentance of sin, turning from life, but they're doing so by putting Paul down. It's contrary to what they ought to be doing. It is selfish ambition. They sense Paul is in a tough spot, so they seek to drive him down further. This is horrible, but it's not uncommon in churches, and it's not unknown in our church. Those who would proclaim Christ in order to cause distress, in order to increase difficulty, those have unfortunately reared their jealousy and strife too often in churches, too often in this church. And it's a horrible situation. It is, it is those who are, who are self-focused, although yet the gospel goes forward. A tremendous offense, to be sure, but yet one that is nonetheless seeking to focus on Christ. But notice verse 17 also mentions the other group, those of pure motives. Not those in strife or jealousy, but those who are operating with sincere motives. This is what Paul referenced back in verse 10 of chapter 1. Look, at, look back at verse 10 of chapter 1. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So these in verse 17 that are from pure motive are the same as those in verse 10 that are to approve the excellent things and be sincere and blameless. Remember what all of those words mean. Approve is that word for a saying, for metallurgy, for purifying gold. It is, it is determining and understanding that which is of the highest value and therein approving it. And the things which are excellent are, are in reflection to a decision that is being made in understanding exactly what is going on. The things that are there to discern, there to differ between that which is, is good and that which is best. Trying to decide in, in those nuances of that which reflects the very best for God. This is the knowledge that he's proclaiming and, and asking them to have. He talks about them being sincere there in verse 10. That word sincere means something that is tested by sunlight. Well, how do we go from tested in fire by gold to tested in sunlight? Well, in this culture, keep in mind that most everything was in pottery. That's why when we look at the artifacts today from the ancient world, the Qumran scrolls and everything else, it's not just the scroll itself that is of value, but it's the pottery in which it is placed. Well, in that day, there were the shysters in the pottery business because pottery that was very well painted, um, oftentimes with precious metals, gold and fine colors, was sold for a tremendous amount of money. Now, we see that today, don't we? These are the Ming vases of our or vases. I guess it's vase, but I just can't say that word. That's too California. Um, sorry. 
But the Ming vases, you know, these beautifully painted million-dollar vases, well, in that day, they would have these very elaborate vases. But what happens to pottery sometimes? Oop! Rather than trashing it, these shysters would go out and they'd get the clay and they'd get the paste and they'd patch it. Because if I can patch it and then I can just repaint over it, then it looks like it's still worth buku bucks, even though it's got huge cracks in it. Well, this word sincere or exposed to the sunlight is where that pottery would be taken out in the sunlight and through the pottery as the sun would shine because it is translucent, pottery is translucent, they could tell where the cracks were. They could tell whether the pottery was pure. So it was another level of discerning and seeing that which was, as the text says here, that which was sincere and that which was blameless. Blameless being that particular element of without offense, particularly in the area of relationships. Relationships. This envy and this strife is definitely not blameless, but rather he's telling them that they are, the ones with pure motives, are those that are to be able to uh, say or approve the things which are excellent and to discern, to look through and find out that which is sincere and pure and that their relationships would have true integrity, not causing others to sin. This is, this is, the, this is the hallmark of our relationships one with another. This is where the, the one place where the marital bond is superseded by the Scripture. When the man or the woman tells their spouse that they must sin in order to obey them, that is where the wife, being under submission to her husband, is commanded to deny her husband and to obey God rather than man, and not to sin as he might desire her to do so. And so it is in our relationships. As we interact one with another, when we find out those conditions of sin that are going on, we can have no part in that. We must separate ourselves from it because those are not the things that are of pure motive. And that's what we must pursue. The pure motive, those things being contrasted with the ones preaching from envy and strife. Well, verse 15 also addresses the second group. And the, as it does so, addresses the second group, it talks about those who preach also from goodwill. This term relates to the satisfaction and contentment, uh, according to Dr. MacArthur. The second group are those whose preaching is not selfishly motivated. Their desire is to see Christ exalted. They are, in this way, focusing on God. They are not resentful as the other group is. This word translated goodwill in verse 15 is also used of God in Ephesians 1 and verses 5 to 9. Let me read those two verses for you. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 and Ephesians 1 and verse 9. Ephesians 1 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. 
It is that goodwill that brings the kind intention of God by which we are predestined, by which we are adopted as sons of Christ. This is the type of preaching that those others are bringing forward. Genuine preaching, pure motive preaching. Verse 9 of Ephesians 1 says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. We understand the mysteries of Christ. It's not like it's something we gain or we keep to ourselves. This was a huge problem in Paul's day and it is in our day as well. Those who think they have this level of higher knowledge, oh, look at me, I have a doctorate. So I have all the knowledge. And the rest of you can come to me and perhaps I will bless you with some of this. That's not biblical motives for preaching. That's completely contrary to God's word. That's completely contrary to proper gospel preaching. The point of right, goodwill preaching is to expose to everyone so that they can understand, so that they can grow, so that they can be lifted up. And that's exactly the kind of preaching that is going on by these who have the proper perspective. These other preachers are making a free determination to do good things in relation to Paul in loving, in aiding, in honoring him as the great apostle of the church, according to one commentator. Well, as we think of of this whole idea of those who are preaching from goodwill, verse 16 carries us further in the discussion of this group where it says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. I don't know if it's just me, if there's maybe kind of a a little dyslexic uh, hitch in me somewhere, but when I start thinking about former and latter, I usually have to spend a a bunch of time trying to figure out which group is being referenced. It's obviously talking about the group in the previous reference, so in the previous verse, the former group being the first group and the latter being the second. it seems pretty simple now that I say it, but it always, I always struggle with it. But there's another interesting part that is revealed in verse 16. We talk about it quite a bit, but sometimes it's very hard to see. But I, we see it very clearly here. It's called a chiastic structure, or a chiasm, or a chiasm, you might hear it say, or, or have heard said. That comes from the Greek letter key, C-H-I. And it looks like an X. In fact, it looks like a script X. If you drew a little X on your page in front of you, you would very clearly see how this chiastic structure plays out in verses 15 to 17. In verse 15, the verse begins talking about which group? The former group, which are those preaching from envy and strife the top of the X. Verse 17 is the bottom of the X. What is it talking about? The same group, the formers who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. What is in the middle as the two branches of the X come together? As they cross in the middle, it's, I know, I just can't get that together. I never would be a gangbanger. I couldn't do all this stuff. Um, Dave's smiling at me, so now it's for his benefit if no one else is. Um, Unfortunately, we're not recording this, praise the Lord. And, uh, and so, at least from a video portion. So, um, 
the, the, the middle of the X where the two lines cross is verse 16. It is the center. It is the pivot of a chiasm. It's the most important point. And what is that? It's talking about the latter group, those who are preaching out of goodwill, those who do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So when you recognize or you hear that term chiasm, it's talking about something in the middle that's sandwiched by two things or more that are parallel, but the focus is that which is in the middle. Paul is telling us that this is the focus. These in the middle are the most important thing. These preachers from goodwill, they do it out of love. That is, they preach Christ out of pure love. Not to tear down or to be superior to another pastor, namely Paul. They do it out of love for Paul, love for Christ. Their true heart's desire and their inner motive is love. Exactly like we see back in verse 9 of chapter 1 where it says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment. Real true love is focused on knowledge. It's focused on discernment. This is not love is blind. You know, puppy love when we have our first crush, that may be blind. But that is not agape love. Agape love is saturated with discernment. This is not love like someone who has been found the girl that he thinks he may be going to date and he's been, you know, married and he's been dating her for a little while. And, oh, there's a few nuances that, you know, might not go well at home. She chews with her mouth open or whatever and mom and dad might not like that. But I can overlook that, right, because I love her. It's not that kind of love. This is agape love that is covered with knowledge, saturated with discernment, full of truth, full of purity. That is the type of love which these are preaching from. They do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Four times so far, the word gospel has come up in this short epistle. They have enlightened, intelligent love regarding Paul's main goal, the gospel. I, I know what's being talked about. I want to proclaim this, and I want to do it fully. The preaching of Christ is what is most important. That is what has to come forward. I have to make sure that people understand about my Savior. I have to proclaim Jesus with all that I am. I have to let them know the joy that I have from Christ, the peace that exists in me, which did not exist before, which does not exist in this world. And it comes from the gospel. I have to preach about repentance. I have to preach about sin. I have to preach about wrath. And beloved, that is our goal. Because this is not just the preachers, as we've talked about. The proclaiming goes beyond the preachers out to all that are in the church that are bringing this forward. We all have to have this proclamation and that proclamation is to this defense which Paul is appointed. The Greek word defense here is the word apologia, where we get our word apologetics. To defend the gospel. The, the, the Greek word as well that we see that talks about being appointed here describes a soldier standing in his post. 
as we think about the defense of the gospel, Paul states, I stand for the gospel defense is essentially what he's saying. I am, I am here to proclaim the gospel. I'm standing for it. Paul is here in Rome on trial, and yet it's not him that's on trial. We've discussed this before. It's the gospel that's on trial. Paul isn't caring about himself. Do what you will with me. If I am guilty, deserving death, he said all the way back to Felix, then so I should die. It's not about me. It's about the gospel. This is what's on trial. This is what I'm appointed for a defense of, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question of our first point is not yet answered. Namely, to what end? All this upright preaching, all this envious preaching, well, to what end? Where does it go next? Well, that's what Paul further discusses in verse 18, where he begins and says, what then? He asks the same question. What of all of this? What of the envy and strife preachers? What of the goodwill preachers? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is all about rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel. These are not the Judaizers. These are not the heretics that Paul needs to go after. And notice that he doesn't go after them. Paul doesn't go down into the mud after those who are casting dispersion on him, of those who have strife with him, of those who are envious of him. No, he doesn't do that because that's the right response. You know, many had come to me and I'm sure to the other elders and said, you know, with all of these things going on in our church, why are you not standing up? Why are you not speaking back about them? Why don't you, you know, bring out all of these details? Because that's not what's to be done. That's not what Paul does. The goal is to continue to see the gospel brought forward. Now, when we get to such a time that that begins to divide and to destroy the fabric of the congregation, then that has to happen. But until such time, the elders make no comment. They don't hear, they don't in other churches, because that's the God-honoring response. But to continue to pray and preach and to pursue the proclamation of the gospel, for that is what's most important. If others may seek to tear you down, we won't go in the mud. We won't get into that fight with them. Never acting out of envy and strife, but acting in a way that honors God. Because, beloved, that's how we must act. Because what happens when that type of envious or, or attitudes of strife come into our lives? They tear us down, don't they? When we have that kind of bitterness in our soul, it draws us down. It makes us ineffective. Who were these preachers of Christ focusing on with envy and strife? Yes, the gospel was going forth, but not to the caliber because they're focused on themselves. This is that selfish ambition. We must be so careful to recognize how quickly we can allow selfish ambition to come into our lives and how quickly it will remove us from effectiveness in the gospel. It can come in when not only are we ambitious, but when we just don't want to put ourselves out. 
We don't want to put ourselves before someone to be torn down, to be attacked for our faith, so we say nothing. No, that cannot be us. We must be those who are like these who are preaching from goodwill, doing it out of love, knowing that as Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel, so are you, so am I. That's why we're here. It is the glory worth rejoicing in. And no matter what happens, no matter what people think of me, no matter what people think about you, we should too rejoice like Paul. It is not that I am perfect. I will never be perfect. But I will never stop preaching Christ. Because it's all that matters. It's all that there is. It is the glory that has brought life to me that never could I have known before as I wallowed in the mire of this world and its sin. But when Christ lifted me up out of that and he placed me on the rock of his son and I was able to move forward in the power of his spirit, I understood something I'd never understood before. And it was not the, the shallowness of this world. It was not the the wood, hay, and stubble, which our world pursues. But it was the glory of Christ. It was the peace of Christ. It was the joy of Christ. The unmitigated joy, which nothing could stop because it was not from this world. No one can take it away from us because no one has given it to us but Christ. And it is such a delight, is it not, to know that truth? What a blessing we have to realize that there are Two ways to proclaim Christ. Preaching to what end? Well, we'll come back and pick up our second point when we get together next week. But for now, let's consider what our attitude and our response is and how we will grow in the same understanding that brings us to the chiasm, to the crux, to the cross of this wonderful section of Scripture. Doing it all out of love, knowing that we are appointed for the gospel and pursuing the pure motives that is Christ in us.